0: let's hack the process together okay quick explain the differences among sales marketing engineering and product management if you work in a company with one or more of these organizations and the answer doesn't trip easily off your tongue then you might want to listen to rich miranov rich is a product management expert who helps companies understand and respect the differences and improve how these groups work together rich makes the case that product is not in charge of shipping on time but product is in charge of shipping the right thing that customers need and will pay for. In this episode, Rich discusses exactly how he builds and maintains his strong social network, how leading workshops helps him stay on top of his industry, and points out the importance of defining a problem-solution set that will allow you to sell a benefit that addresses a problem your customers actually have. Today, I'm talking with Rich Miranov, and he is a product management guru. Rich, is that how you introduce yourself to folks these days?
1: Uh, sometimes. I think uh, sometimes I describe myself as a parachute in product executive for startups, but that's a bit of a mouthful. So we'll go with a product management guru as shorter. <laughs> Either one of those sounds interesting. How do you describe the sort of work that you do? It really comes in two or three parts. I think the the biggest part is for pretty small companies, let's say twenty to fifty to seventy person startups. If they either haven't built a product management organization or have recently lost the head of that, they would really like to bring somebody in for a quarter or two to get all the trains running, to make sure products on track and customers are happy. So this is an interim or temporary smoke jumper kind of job to come in. And make sure that product's working smoothly in a startup, and then I can backfill myself, hire, or promote a replacement.
0: Okay. And this is specifically the product organization that you're focusing on. Exactly right. So how do you distinguish the product organization? Because I think some people sometimes get a little bit unclear about where those borders are. And they are. the, The borders are not clear. But
1: for me, for instance, I don't run engineering organizations. So I'm assuming if if I look around the the executive team for some company, there's someone in charge of sales or go-to-market, depending on how they're labeling that. There should be somebody in charge of marketing and outbound messaging, and there should be someone in charge of engineering, sometimes called IT, sometimes called CIO, but the folks who actually build software, if it's a software product, don't work for me. There's usually one or two or a handful of folks who sit between those people one foot in the engineering organization and one foot in the marketing sales go-to-market side of the house that are on the one hand translating inward what do customers really want and on the other hand translating outward what is it that we've built. And if life is really good, then it turns out that the thing we've built is also of use to the people who have the problem we'd like to solve.
0: (laughs) That does sound like an ideal world. You're sitting in the position where you're straddling that information coming in and that information going out. Right. And in fact, the,
1: the good measure of a healthy product organization is that we really do understand the problems that our customers or clients are trying to solve. And we really do build products that meet those needs. Right, So product's not in charge of shipping on time, but
0: product is in charge of shipping the right thing that customers need and will pay for. Now, that's an interesting distinction because I've I've certainly met a lot of product managers or folks who claim to be product managers who seem very focused on that shipping on time aspect of the job. It's really important. But if you open the box, you'll discover that, in fact, most product managers
1: don't write code, don't write manuals, don't run tests, don't design UI, UX. And so the ultimate responsibility for getting stuff done that goes in the box or ships on the website or goes out the door doesn't rest with product managers. So we have influence, we have responsibility, but at the end of the day, we can't actually make the things we want ship on time. We push, we cajole, we, you know, we corral, we drive agreement. Often we drop features in order to make delivery dates, but we're not the people who actually do the ground level work that builds product. It sounds like it could be a very frustrating role because you're so hands off. I think you're very, very hands-on, but indeed, it can be a very frustrating role. And I observe that most of the folks who've not done this job and think it's sexy are disappointed their first time out. When you started it, were you one of those folks who thought it was going to be sexy? I didn't actually know what I was getting into, so I had very low expectations. But, yeah, it's it takes a certain point of view. It takes a certain temperament. It's action at a distance, I think of it and and describe it a lot in the same words I would use to talk about being a parent, right? Your job as a parent is not to do all the things for your kid that your kid has to do. Your job is to make sure that your kid grows up to be an independent, successful whoever it is that they want to be and do. And so the the joys of parenthood are not because you're out, you know, on the t-ball field or in the ballet class or riding the horse, it's because you took the kid to practice for five years, and now the kid is succeeding. So very much action at a distance, the the mediator, moderator, pusher along so that the rest of
0: the organization does great work and gets to be rewarded for it. That's interesting. Is, is that where you expected your career to be going, into a product management side of things? I'd say, at least until recently, no one in the world ever expected to be in a product management
1: job or career. Um, (laughs) Mama, don't let your kids grow up to be product managers. It's not on the list. And I think if you talk to a lot of product managers, they will consistently say that their first job as a product manager was thrust into a situation with no prep, no training, very little guidance or mentoring or
0: coaching, and a team that wasn't quite sure what they were supposed to be doing. I can attest to that having actually been thrust into a role like that myself for a very short period of time and quickly getting myself out of it. (laughs) So I'm told, by the way, that really, really
1: smart people do product management for a couple or four years, and then they get promoted to something else. This is where we note that I've been in product management for a very long
0: time. Well, you've taken yourself out of the hands-on role in product management. You've kind of moved up into the senior product management roles. Indeed, I've moved myself up the stack, and part of
1: that is that being a a first-line product manager, individual contributor, tremendously emotional, hard-working job takes a lot out of you. You've got to bring your best political skills and your love of product and your sort of social smarts and your technical smarts in every single day. It can often be a very burnout job, so folks either move up, move over. I've gone up the stack a couple of levels now, so most of my work is either – the organizational problems of building product teams or coaching and consulting to VPs of product and folks running product organizations.
0: That's right because you've, you've sort of detached yourself from the marriage to a single company that a lot of product management people get into and you move around from company to company. I do. I do. I feel tremendously lucky to be able to do that. On the one hand, product folks
1: do want to be married to their product and to their company for a long time, because in order to be any good at this, you need to get through 2, three, four, 5, 8, 15 releases to own the mistakes that you've made and fix them, to learn to truly love your customers and users over time, to build a lot of great empathy and relationships with those folks. So everything about product management wants to be a long-term venture you know, back to parenting, it's about having a kid and, and you know, nurturing that kid to grow up. I've moved myself into what looks much more like foster care. So if I pop into a startup for a quarter or two, I will never be the expert in their technology. And I don't really want to build a lot of personal relationships with their particular clients myself, because I know I'm not going to be there that long. So my job is to set everything up so that I can quietly run out the door, and everything's working, and honestly, nobody else knows I'm gone.
0: Those personal relationships with clients and with customers, that's a very critical part of real product management, isn't it?
1: It is indeed, and sometimes I run into product managers who tell me that their sales and marketing organizations won't let them talk with customers, and that's not a successful strategy for me. I I either have to say, then you're not doing product management or you need to step up and make some real changes in your organization because it's just not possible to know the details of how your product or service are going to make
0: customers love you and pay you a lot of money if you aren't talking to them very directly almost every day. I know sales and marketing does tend to be very protective of those relationships, and I think that's one of the reasons people are confused about where the borders are between those departments. Right, and they should be, right? So if I'm the major account manager for some customer
1: of my company that brings $20 million in and I get a big hefty commission and a trip to uh, Hawaii every year to go to club, right? I am correctly very defensive of that. On the other hand, the sales teams that are good bring product managers in for the right stuff. So often late in the sales cycle, you want the product manager to both answer a bunch of hard questions and to represent the company as a whole because customers usually are smart enough to know that sales reps don't represent the company as a whole. And so product managers are often brought in as closers late in the game, which is good. By the way, that's a very distinct job for the product manager than learning anything. So when I talk about interacting with customers and understanding their needs, that can only be in a situation where I'm not also trying to get them to sign a contract, right? So so there's two kinds of meetings I have with customers. One is where the sales team has me in or the sales and marketing team has me in to close, And my job in that meeting is to close, ideally without promising anything on behalf of the company that we haven't already agreed to, right? So no new features promised in the meeting, but I'm there to answer questions and to move things along and to bring money in, in service to sales. The other kind of meeting is where it's not under the gun, it's not a commission issue, and I get to ask all the many open-ended questions I want to ask. For instance... Which of these 10 features that we have not committed to would you really be interested in having in our product next year, right? What adjacent spaces are we not addressing that you think we should have a product in? What did we do badly with the last release or the last quarter or your last interaction? And those are all critical questions, but my sales team would leave me in the dumpster,
0: I think, if I asked those during a closing meeting. I can hear salespeople just shaking in their boots when they hear you even bring up some of those questions. That's right. And so, so knowing that that's the case,
1: knowing that my job in a sales closer meeting is to close, it becomes doubly urgent for me to make lots and lots of opportunities to talk to customers when they really want to tell me things. Because, of course, the customer in that closing meeting has no incentive to open up to me and tell me what's true, right? Gee, would you pay more for my product? <laughs> Right. Of course not. But but in the long term, play it forward, many cycle game of knowing my customers over the, you know, over the years, I'm going to have many opportunities to sit down with them when there's nothing at stake other than the long term future of the product, which they want to be great. Right, so if they've invested in my product, of course, they want to tell me what's true. Of course, they want to help me understand their use case or their success or how it makes them a hero. And I must be scheduling those in between, let's say, the 12-month renewal cycle for a SaaS product, right? A great time is three weeks in, five weeks in to find out what didn't work so well on the onboarding, and six months in when there's plenty of time to do something between now and when renewal rolls around in case I could make them happier, right? In month 11, that's a terrible, terrible time to be asking how they would improve my
0: product on my behalf. Absolutely. Now, once you have that information, though, then you need to start dealing with the internal politics of the company in order to make things happen. I'm very interested in how you make that translation so that you can get things that need to get done, done inside of a company when you're acting from this product perspective. Right. And, you know, the important
1: things about that and, and, you know, organizational and politics are two of the words that will appear in the the top of every sentence or every paragraph of that discussion, because since no one else works for product management, this is a purely influence-driven and consensus-driven kind of problem where you, you take as much authority as you can, but nobody's giving it to you, right? So if we if we sort of follow in from the customer suggestion or request, let's imagine I've had 27 meetings with customers this month, and they want 28 different things, 54 different things right? 2,700 different things. The, the first thing I think as a product person I want to unpack, and sometimes we call it jobs to be done or understanding the problem, is customers almost always want to tell me how to solve the problem that they think they have instead of telling me what problem they have. Mm-hmm. Everyone's a system architect. All I need to do is make the button red and put it in the middle and change the download and add a few fields to the report Right? But none of that is about what problem I'm solving for them or why it's important. So, so the very first sort of step here is to carefully and humbly tear apart why is this a problem for you? What problem are we solving? How does this add value kind of discussion from? You gave me a prescriptive answer for what to do. Right? And uniformly, my customers don't understand the product very well. Or I'm talking to someone who's not really a user and has, you know, they've passed it up the chain. There's a 100 reasons why that request is wrong. So we've got to rip it apart and find the essence here. I think anybody who's gone through some of the lean UX stuff that uh, you know, Tristan Cromer or Laura Klein or somebody has done you know, has a good taste for how you
0: unpack what they asked for and find what they need. I was thinking that what you're describing sounds a lot like the design thinking that they talk about at IDEO, for example. Right. So, you know,
1: back before IDEO and back before we called it design thinking, we actually called it product management. But (laughs) since they understand branding and I don't, they win and we'll call it design thinking if you like. (laughs) But there's another step, too, here, and I think if you look at some of the uh, the design thinking approaches – they're really good at understanding the problems that potential customers have. They're not always good at understanding the, the economics. Right? So the reason I like to have a little MBA-ish flavor in my product managers as well as engineer and sort of UX empathy is because it's not enough that people want this problem solved. If I'm at a company that is at its heart trying to survive and make money, right? on the one hand, this better be a problem that a lot of people have in roughly the same structure. Because if we're going to solve it as a product, we want one product or one family of products to solve it for hundreds or thousands of companies or hundreds of thousands of consumers. And it's all over my site. The, you know Building something for one customer is a great business if you're a contract software development firm. It's a terrible business if you're a product company. After I've talked to my dozens and hundreds of customers and helped understand and unpack what they need, I'm sifting through that for common stories common solutions, things that we can build in a product format and duplicate many, many, many times because that's where the money is. And so design thinking is a great start. We then have to put some economic thinking on it. I'm not a system architect, as many system architects will tell you. Um, (laughs) So I need one in the room with me who looks at the problem in a sort of technology systems view and says, it's easy or hard to solve. It uses the pieces we have. In order for it to qualify as worthwhile as product, it has to, one, have a lot of users, potential users. Two, has to really solve
0: a problem for them. And three, has to be buildable in some finite amount of time. That architect who's in the room talking with you, that is definitely not somebody on your own team, though, right? Probably shouldn't be. You know, if if I think of the most senior product folks on my team may have
1: been engineers, but I really don't want them to be architects. Ideally, my company has somebody in titles vary. We all know who that person is, but we don't know what her or his name is or title, right? So if I walk into any company and I say, I'm trying to figure out how we should architect this new solution, everyone at the company will tell me who that person is, but their title will vary. CTO, senior architect, junior developer who everybody knows is really smart. It's not a function of title. It's a function of
0: knowing who the smart people are and getting them in the room. And again, it's about creating that internal network and navigating the internal politics. That's right. Because if it's a junior person and
1: the senior architect's going to get all up in in an ego trip about how he sh- he didn't get invited to the meeting, inviting the senior architect to the meeting is not my goal. My goal is to figure out how we're going to build product. So yes, it's a lot of sizing up the internal talent. It's figuring out who the really smart people are. It's building very small teams of the right folks who bring market knowledge, who bring segment and user knowledge, who bring technical knowledge, who bring product and pricing knowledge. There might only be three or five of us in the room for just a few hours, but what we come out with is
0: the right stuff. So you're talking about building teams, but you're not talking about changing the organizational hierarchy. These aren't teams that report to you. These are teams for a function. Correct.
1: And in the course of a year, we might only pull that group of people together a half a dozen times to do this very thing, which is before we put it on the roadmap, before we commit to anything, we want to get all of the smart people together to hash it out. Door closed, whiteboards cleaned. What are the three or four things that we heard about that can meet all three check marks, right? So there seems to be a lot of demand for it, ideally, maybe even in our current market, we think we can make money at it in some direct or indirect way. And it doesn't, for instance, blow up our architecture and cause us to burn everything to the ground. That's a subtle process that, you know, I would say I can orchestrate, I can drive the collaboration of. It's not necessarily important that I have any of the best facts
0: I've read some of your writings, I've seen some of your presentations, you talk a lot about how engineering organizations need to be run and about how agile processes can be effective, where product fits into that, and yet you don't view yourself or your role as anywhere being part of engineering.
1: Sometimes product reports to engineering, and sometimes product reports to marketing, and sometimes product reports to the CEO. I think it's really important to have a a sort of church and state division here, though, so... The failure mode I see when product works for engineering is that engineers who are uniformly smarter than product managers, and we know this because when we ask them, they tell us, (laughs) right, that engineering tells product what we're going to build. And that might be okay in a tremendously technical product set. For instance, if I'm doing uh, some kind of internal cloud management for virtual machines, then my customers are engineers, and my lead thinkers are engineers, and maybe product just rides along. But in almost all markets, the engineers as a group don't understand positioning. They don't understand pricing and packaging. They don't understand selling. They don't understand any of the things that turn bits into saleable product. And they don't understand how to filter out the noise so well. And so if I take my direction from the head of engineering as to what to build, I'm always afraid we're going to build something beautiful that no one wants to pay for, right? And building a beautiful thing that no one wants to pay for is the biggest waste of
0: resources we can possibly have in engineering. You were talking about the qualifications that you look for in product managers. And one of the things that you said was that you like them to have an engineering background. I do. Part of that is that I come from a B2B side of the world. So, for instance, if I, in years
1: past, I worked on uh, network intrusion and uh, products to detect wireless, wireless hacks and wireless attacks on networks. Pretty technical. The customers for that tend to be chief security officers of companies who are uniformly technical. If you don't have a good technical background, it's pretty hard for you to hang with your engineers. It's pretty hard for you to help sell. It's pretty hard for you to understand the trade-offs you're making. So an engineering background would really help, be helpful. If I'm in some of the more consumer spaces, let's say I'm doing um, you know online information about real estate prices and, and housing listings. If I'm on the back end with the folks who are building the big data analytics, then engineering's really important. If I'm on the front end trying to recruit real estate agents maybe not so much. right? So would I make an absolute requirement? No. But if the product I'm shipping is an API to get developers to use
0: some communications infrastructure, and I don't speak much developer, then I ain't much use. That does make perfect sense. And uh, that that's also critical for getting that subtle influence that you need to establish across the company through your network of product managers.
1: That's right. and And, you know, routinely I see Product managers who either don't have a lot of technical background or don't show it being shunned by their engineering and technical teams for good reason for bad. But they get disinvited from the standups and, you know, they're treated badly because the engineering team decides that they're not technical enough to be worthy and be invited. Now, I usually think that's a mistake, but I can't change the prejudices of large engineering organizations that engineering is really hard and
0: important. No, and it sounds like a lot of a lot of your role is recognizing what the real environment is and adapting to meet the needs. Right. In the same way, and, and just to take the other side
1: of this, so I really think MBAs have a lot of great skills that one develops in the program. Uh, I've gone on record saying I'm usually unenthusiastic about hiring somebody directly out of business school because if they've spent the last two years reading a bunch of case studies that start with, you are the CEO of... They tend to have come out, particularly out of the best schools, and, and you know I did well on that, but they tend to come out with pretty big egos. I think a lot of the more modern MBA programs are much more collaborative and much more team-driven, but honestly, no nobody wants to hire that name-brand MBA who wants to displace the CEO in week three because he's so much smarter. I'd love to hire the MBA a year or two later after we've injected a bunch of humility back in the system.
0: I think a lot of people now are going back for their MBAs after a few years working the way that you did. And that adds a little bit of background as well. Sure. And I use the word humble a lot, which is
1: different from uninformed, right? So I think having great smart product managers with terrific instincts and great technical knowledge and great market knowledge and a killer ability to do prioritization is is necessary, is great, but I don't want it to show so much. I want the product managers to be orchestrating everybody to get to the right answer. And if the team's getting to the right answer, maybe your product manager doesn't have to be the one to say it. It's, It's not about being in charge. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about getting to the best answer. And so terrific skills on the market side, terrific skills on the business or finance side, terrific skills on the engineering side are everything I look for. But people who lead every sentence with the word I... They torque everybody off and nobody wants to work with them,
0: and therefore they can't be effective. It seems like product management in particular is is one of those roles that requires incredibly sensitive human skills. Right.
1: If you just bring the hard skills and leave the soft skills at the door, it's a very, very fast path to some other job in the
0: company. So speaking of paths, I'm curious about your path from working full-time in one company to going off and now you've, you've launched your own company going out and consulting with all of these other businesses. Sure. If
1: I go back, so in my time, I worked at three big companies, Hewlett Packard and Tandem and Sybase. I worked for six startups, depends how you count it, maybe five, as an employee, as the, usually the first product person in the door. At some point, you can't join another startup unless you're truly in love. Right? You've got to love the team. You've got to love the product. You've got to love the marketplace because you're going to spend the next one to five years doing that thing. And if you don't bring love every day, you can't do this job. I had a chance, actually, if I go all the way back to 2001 when I first hung out my shingle as a consultant. So I had been at a startup that I joined in January of 2001. It wasn't going so well. I wasn't really excited about it. I walked out... I left the building on September 1st of 2001. If you go back and check your calendar, and I decided I was going to take two weeks off and there'd be lots of jobs. So when I think of September 11th, it's of course for all the people who lost their lives and the way it changed the world. But on September 12th, I discovered I was a consultant because I had a mortgage and a young
0: daughter and a college fund and no job seems like a very difficult time to launch a business. Things were very difficult for many companies. A lot of companies shuttered, closed their doors during that time. That's right. The the way I remember it, people were pushing Aeron chairs out to the
1: sidewalk and locking their doors faster than the office supply resellers could pick them up. I mean, it was a very, very tough time. I was lucky. I had been in the industry then for almost 20 years. You know, I did what all of us do when we need help. I think it was the first time in a very long time I had needed some help. So again, humility applies here. I picked up my Rolodex. I don't think it was really a Rolodex. It was some address book on some device. It was your Palm Pilot. It was my. It may have been, in fact been my Palm Pilot. I think it was after the Newton and after General Magic, but it, it might have been a Palm Pilot. And I picked out the names of 15 or 20 people who I knew first person had worked with. And I set up a whole series of lunches and breakfasts and coffees. And I invited myself to check in with a bunch of folks. And You know, the great thing about Silicon Valley, and and not in the geographic sense, in the the social sense around the world, is I think we all try to pay it forward. We all look out for each other. We all help when we can. So here were 15 or 20 folks, every one of whom reached back out, scheduled coffee with me, asked how they could help, checked in, right? And what was really interesting for me was sort of two sets of responses I I got from almost everybody I took. The first was they said, I'd love to help. Tell me what I can do to help. I'm yours. Give me, give me an ask. Right? And the second thing almost every single person said was, hmm, so you're looking for software product management work. Remind me again what a product manager is? <laughs> I think there's a lot of confusion around that. And still is. And, and so what I realized, the, the takeaway from that for me, being a product manager and knowing that at that moment, I was the product. Right? So if I'm going to sell myself into a bunch of consulting work because I need the work, I am the product or service that I'm trying to market, right? And it turns out if you're trying to market a product or a service that nobody quite has the handle on what you do, that's a hard sell, right? So the ask of I'm looking for product management work, do you need a product manager, turned out not to be that useful because
0: not everybody knew what it was. I was thinking that when you said that uh, some of the people in your network said, give me an ask, I'm ready to help you. That can be very difficult because you have to know what to ask
1: for. Indeed. Indeed. And so maybe the third lesson there is if you're going to go ask for something from people, think really hard about the ask so it's easy for them and it's valuable for you. Because usually you usually only get one or two asks, so you know, choose wisely. What did you come up with as your ask when the, in that situation? So I pulled way back. In fact, I found a couple of short consulting gigs that tied me over. But the reason I started a blog at the end of two thousand one, besides the fact that blogs didn't exist before two thousand one, <laughs> what, what I did I, I started writing really aggressively. And, and let me sort of tell you the inside scoop on this, because it's really the hack on the system. Is if you're trying to market yourself doing product management stuff to people who don't know what product managers do. You have to actually unpack that and find a problem solution description, right? You have to sell a benefit to a problem that your potential customers might have. Now, this is obvious to everyone who does product management, who takes whatever product got built and tries to find some benefits for it so that people will pay us for it, right? That's the job we do. But it wasn't clear to me, crystal clear at the time. So I ended up writing a very, very long series of blog posts now, 15 years, 16 going on, right? Where instead of talking about product management, I unpacked some one particular small problem that a product manager might solve. For instance, we're bringing a new product to market in a new space. There's no direct competitors. How do we price that product? Why? Because maybe there's folks in the Valley who are in that very situation who have rushed something to market and have forgotten to price it. And they're stuck. And now they could actually call me up to say, well, we forgot to price our product. Do you know how to do that? And
0: indeed, we didn't call it product management. We called it, you forgot to price your product. Interesting. It's like you're sliding in the door without having to get past that definition. Exactly right. And so the next
1: one was, you know, how do you interview prospects for your product who may not know they need your product? Now, every company has this problem. If they're having trouble with it, it may be because they've forgotten to have product managers or design thinkers, as you will, right? So I wrote a thousand words on how do you interview customers, and I wrote a thousand words on how do you set discount policies for your sales force so they don't discount everything ninety-five percent, and I wrote a thousand words on uh, how do you end of life a product that you're really tired of having and you want to replace with something, right? and I and I wrote a thousand words a month for, let's say the first seven or eight years that were not about product management. They were about the problems product managers solve. Now, these days, what we call this is content marketing, right? This is content marketing because the only people who are going to read a 1,000 words about how to end a life of product are people who are concerned about how to end a life of product. And the only people who are going to read a 1,000 words about how you interview a customer if you've never done one before are people who know how to solve that problem. So what I've done is I've taken the product management role and a microtome to it. I've sliced it as thinly as I can. And I've written over and over again about pieces of the problem that we
0: solve. That's interesting. I'm curious how you sliced it up in that way, because it's it's like a creative brainstorming process coming up with something specific to write about. Uh, It wasn't so hard
1: because if you've been doing the job for a while and go back and look at your calendar, figure out what problems you were solving. So if you read my piece about pricing new products for a startup, I gave you most of the solution and you were welcome to call me for the rest of the help. Effectively, I was writing out ahead of the work. I was writing hypothetical solutions to the problems I wanted to solve. Of course, if you're reading it, it's because you have this problem and you're going to call me up. So I was out ahead of the particular jobs I was looking to do or the assignments I was looking for because I wasn't writing about the assignments I didn't want.
0: So now that's interesting. This, again, that requires a good deal of self-knowledge in terms of what you want and what you don't want to be doing. Indeed, indeed, you've got to design the thing you want to do,
1: right? So, so this is in the same way. Let's let's go right back to the you know the discussion we had at the very top, which is a lot of people have a lot of problems to solve at their companies. I'm not the person who has to solve all those problems. So I met with dozens of people who had various things they needed done. Most of those, I knew other people who knew how to do. They were tech writers or they were system architects or they were what in those days we didn't yet know was DevOps, right? And I would call people up who I knew from companies that had also shut down and I got people work to do things I didn't do, right? So somebody over breakfast said, I really need a tech writer. And I said, oh, I know a tech writer. Let me put you guys together. That's part of the design cycle here because the things I passed off to other people were clearly the things I wasn't wanting to do myself or wasn't good at, or didn't have the skills. So the design thinking here is, let me get very narrow about the tasks, jobs, consulting projects I want to do. Let me write about those. And everything else falls outside. Let me make sure I have a very long list of people who do all the things I don't do, or am not good at. And I'll throw that work to them, and I don't want anything for it, other than that when they come across a piece of work that's really for me, they bring it to me.
0: Now, that speaks to an interesting challenge because you leave a company and it's very easy to just lose your connection to all of the people who worked there. And maintaining that network is can, can be very challenging. It's hard work. It takes time. It takes energy. A
1: secret, which when you share it, it won't be a secret anymore. But if you go back to all the early Myers-Briggs tests I did, I'm an introvert. But on TV, I play an extrovert, right? <laughs> so if I'm going to network every single day of the year, which I do, and reach out to people I've worked with who've just changed companies or who might need some career advice or whatever I probably make two calls a day to someone I haven't seen in a long time really two calls a day just out of the blue well they're not completely out of the glue for instance I'm a good watcher of the LinkedIn feed that shows who's just changed jobs and if somebody's moved into a cool job I send them the little congratulations or I drop them a note a woman who worked for me 10 years ago just got a new job, and I'm following where she is. That's interesting. And is telephone your preferred way of connecting? It uh, depends what it is. I mean, email is, for, I'm an old email hand. So for me, it's usually an email because I can do that sort of offline. Sometimes it's, you know, I don't, I don't use Facebook at all, but I'll send a tweet or I'll drop a LinkedIn message or something. Phone calls tend to be pretty time-consuming, so I save those up for folks I, you know, I, I need to talk with.
0: That makes sense. Let me get you get into a little bit into the nitty-gritty of this. Do you like use a CRM system of any kind in order to keep track of all of these people? I don't. I use LinkedIn almost every day, all day.
1: So uh, so that's my CRM. It's just me. I don't need that many, you know, there's there's no assistant for me. And and over the years I looked, I've I've consulted to more than a hundred companies in the last fifteen years. So there's a lot of motion every day somebody that I work with at VMware has turned out to move to Salesforce or vice versa.
0: That's huge. So the business that you're running right now, I mean, is, is that something that you run also without assistance, or does that require a team of people? Just me. Just you. Uh, the guy I work for is kind of
1: uncharitable, but, you know, we get along if I've had my meds. It must be very challenging. What kind of tools do you use to keep track of all of the things that you're doing? I'm using Evernote. I'm mostly an email, and Evernote user. Nothing fancy. My projects tend to be big, so if I'm coming into a company for six months... You know, they're my primary client for six months. It's not like I have to keep track of them. And in general, I'm using their own system. So if they're on Jira or Rally or Pivotal or, you know, their email system and and their PowerPoint and their box or Dropbox or whatever, so I'm fitting into their environment.
0: And the things I'm building are really their IP. So you, you sit as an employee. Do you tend to do this on a full-time basis or part-time? Uh, usually it's uh, f- for those kinds of gigs, it's
1: four days a week. I'm preciously guarding just a little bit of my own time. And I know you also run workshops too. How does that work? Uh, They're fun. They're they're a nice sideline for me. I know there are people who train full time and uh, that's not me. So I use it really as a way to refresh my market view. So I did a couple of workshops recently for what I label as product leaders. So these are all directors or VPs of product who manage product managers and maybe other folks. And what was interesting was we got, I don't know, 20 people in a room, all of whom are directors or VPs of product. And we created we We took a sort of agile of a vote-up agenda model, went around the room for introductions, and everyone got to name or nominate one issue they wanted to talk about that day. And I wasn't at all shocked, but everybody else in the room was shocked to find out that the folks in the room had the same four or five core issues for everybody, and and that was, of course, the point, because when, when the door is closed and it's just us and our peers, we can talk very openly, very objectively about issues that some of the folks in the room thought were really their own personal failing. So as, as an example, uh, if you're at a startup and your founders come in once or twice a week and throw the roadmap under the bus because they've just come back from a company, uh, customer meeting, you shouldn't be surprised. Right? Almost every startup has this problem almost every week. But if you're the first product person at the startup and you think this is a personal failure of yours, that if you were just more manly somehow, you know, that if you had better skills that you could convince the founders that their ideas were not as good as yours, then you're making the wrong assessment. Then you're solving the wrong problem. And so getting a group of folks together who are peers at this level lets us talk about the hard issues in a way that's much more objective and less personal And we can get down and dirty about solving them. And since I am focused almost exclusively not on doing product management, but on the folks who manage product managers, this is my audience, right? This is market research. This is refreshing myself with what's really true out there. So when I write about the problems and the concerns that VPs of product have, I do it first person, right? Because I do that work. And I spend a lot of time with the folks who do that work, and I know what's true. And so there's there's verity, there's just hardcore truth. When I put a lot of quotes in my post, the folks in my audience look at it and say, "Gosh, have you been, you know, have you been bugging my conference room, <laughs> right?"
0: Because out, of, you know, out of the mouths of VPs is where this stuff comes. Your your publications really are your primary marketing then for to, to get to this audience because it can be a very difficult audience to reach. Yes, and, and many of them don't have the right title or are
1: in the wrong place in the organization. And it's it's very hard to sell. So instead of selling on marketing. Selling means picking out a particular person and beating it on their head until they say yes, right? Marketing means putting out some very, very targeted, thoughtful pieces that a few thousand people will read and I only need two of them to raise their hands. Knowing that you only need two is an important part of that equation. That's right. Back to I'm a a sole proprietor. If I had 27 people doing what I do and I had to keep them all busy, then I'd have a sales challenge.
0: So how has the nature of your business changed since you launched it?
1: Uh, Well, I've popped in and out. I've dropped into two or three startups since then for breaks. Again, I've, I've moved myself up the stack now so that I think it's hard to tell, but I think I'm the only person... Really, around the world, who writes exclusively and thinks exclusively about executive-level product challenges? Almost everybody else is writing about design thinking or speaking about design thinking or how to get into the product management game as as a newbie, as a new hire, or how to validate products and do A/B testing, right? So, uh, for me, it's very much blue ocean, right? It's it's the space where I can focus on what I'm going to do and. Everything I write and every talk I give and every assignment I take is really lined up against a, a very narrow set of clients and problems. What, what kind of routine do you follow? How do you keep yourself disciplined to make that happen? It's hard. Anybody who runs their own business knows that you go through emotional you know, peaks and valleys. Uh, again, I, I feel tremendously lucky in that I'm busy. I have almost always a little more work than I can do. and It's hard to say no. So my failing here is that I say yes more than I should. But uh, I try really hard to pass pieces of work to other people who do really good things that I don't do so well. So for instance, um, there's a woman up in Portland named Teresa Torres, and she is just brilliant about experimental design and thinking through user journeys and how we're going to test those things. And when someone calls me up for that, my very first reaction now after great training is to say, gee, let me introduce you to Teresa, again, or Tristan, or or one of the other folks who does this, because I'm not that good at it and I'm busy, right? So that's one. The other is, you know, I try to get up really early and do some calls with Europe first thing in the morning, with clients or or friends or opportunities there. So that gets me started in the morning. And maybe the last thing, and then I'll, I'll cut it off at that is, if I'm doing a, an extended engagement, three months, six months. I actually write a status report for the CEO or whoever my hiring manager is every single week with what I've done that week. This is going to sound a lot like a stand-up, by the way. What I, what I accomplished that week and what I plan to accomplish the next week and any comments or schedule issues or, or, or concerns. And I do that for myself as well as for my client because that's a chance on Friday or Saturday for me to stop and think about whether I've really added value that week.
0: Did you also benefit in your career from mentoring or coaching?
1: Later on, I think I didn't know in my early years that I should have asked for it or looked for it. And again, as a new, new to the job, new to the industry, you know, recent MBA, I was pretty sure I knew everything. It's only later on that, that you uh, earn the right to ask for help. So um, I think I, I got lots
0: of good mentoring you know, starting about 10 years in. I guess that's fair because at least at that point, you can also appreciate what you're getting from it. I, I think
1: I just didn't know enough to ask. I think the, the newbie product managers these days are much more aware that they need help. They're much more vocal about asking for it. Uh, I get the call all the time for folks who would like a little help, and when I can, I help. And that's you know back to the paying it forward theory. You know, everybody in our valley, our logical valley, should be paying it forward as best they can. And mentoring is a good way to do that. So for listeners who want to find out more about you and learn more from your process, where can they find you online? So the best places on my website, I'll spell my last name because it's hard. M-I-R-O, N as in Nancy, O, V is in victory, dot .com. So my Twitter handle is Rich Mironov. My website is Mironov.com. My LinkedIn is slash Rich Mironov. I'm easy to find. And again, there's 15 years worth or 16 years worth of posts.
0: They're free. They're for everybody to take. Fantastic. I'll definitely put links to those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all this information. I think it was fascinating. My pleasure. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.